0: Hey there, it's Frank Buckley. Today it's an interview with a woman who is an institution in the restaurant world. Nancy Silverton is a chef, a baker, an author, and an icon in L.A. If you've ever had a loaf of artisan bread from La Brea Bakery, that was Nancy Silverton's creation. She co-founded the bakery in 1989. She also co-founded the seminal L.A. restaurant Campanile with her then-husband Mark Peel. And now she's co-owner of L.A.'s Osteria Mozza, Kispaka, and Pizzeria Mozza, a partnership with Mario Batali and Joe Bastianich. She's won the prestigious James Beard Award for Outstanding Chef, also for Outstanding Pastry Chef, and for Outstanding Restaurant. What's the secret to her success? How did she get to the top in such a competitive field? And what can she teach us about cooking and entertaining at home? You're about to find out because she has a new cookbook called Matzah at Home, and she's going to walk us through one of the recipes during this podcast. We did the interview at Osteria Matzah at the corner of Melrose and Highland in L.A. I hope you enjoy it. Nancy Silverton, thanks for joining me at at one of my favorite restaurants in Southern California
1: your restaurant.
0: Uh, well,
1: I have three restaurants. <laughs> I know you do. Osteria well, actually, Matza. Right.
0: Uh, and we're right next door to uh, a place that I love as well, Chispaca,
1: Right. And you're probably one of the only people that uh, pronounce it correctly, by the way. Uh,
0: well, my wife is uh, from Northern Italy. She's okay. from Milan. So she, I learned how to, to pronounce Quisbacca. Um, and uh, at Quisbacca is a place where you can get a great steak, uh, kind of like a place in Florence, you know, sure. it reminds me of a, A Florentine Steakhouse and around the corner is pizzeria mozza right and
1: of course you can get mozza to go and also since we're talking about Southern California I have a pizzeria in Newport Beach oh what is that pizzeria mozza
0: pizzeria mozza another one two in
1: Singapore but that's not uh, Southern California exactly
0: (laughs) you're on two continents Mm -hmm. Um, and, and here's what you will find in these places if you haven't been you'll find great service you'll find great food and you'll find great care given to both the food and the service. And and there's always a feeling, I've found, that you're having a special experience when you're here.
1: I'm loving that description. Well, that's
0: <laughs> exactly how it is. And I really do love this place. I'm not just saying that because you're here. I'm looking forward to hearing how this wonderful place came to be. Also about your new cookbook, your ninth matzah at home. Yep. It's your ninth matzah uh-huh. at home. And how we might try to take some of the secrets of entertaining and do the same at home. And... and I don't know if we can recreate the experience here of matzah, but at least...
1: That's not supposed to recreate the experience of matzah. It is supposed to be entertaining at home.
0: Excellent. Well, we'll get to that in a second. But the first thing I want to do is talk to you about your passion for cooking and food. And where did it come from?
1: You know, it came from cooking. Uh, I was not one of the sort of early cooks like we find today you know i run into so many uh seven-year-olds that are uh that are obsessed with cooking (laughs) and obsessed with watching cooking shows uh that was not my case Uh, firstly we didn't have those kinds of shows when i was growing up you know i'm 62 (laughs) i'm talking about in the mid-50s right but also i really uh i had no interest in eating i had no interest in in cooking, I had no interest in experimenting with with eating. I was just a very very bland uh, uh, consumer of food, or I had very bland tastes, I should say. And How I that really, be? well, I really didn't discover the joys of cooking um, and my excitement for food until I went to college in 1972. This I, was
0: Sonoma, Sonoma State. Yeah, yeah.
1: I went to Sonoma State College. Um, wonderful area to be in school in Sonoma County, very close to Napa County, close to San Francisco, right? How could you not become food obsessed? But it was there that I started cooking in my college dormitory, all because of a boy. The boy was (laughs) cute. I wanted to get to know him. I found out he was cooking in the dorm kitchen. I told him I wanted to cook in the dorm kitchen. And the rest is history. It was all about a boy. All about a boy.
0: And, and do you remember what those first dishes were that you uh, cooked to impress this boy?
1: Well, I didn't cook to impress the boy. Uh, I cooked because he did hire me to cook in the college dorms. Oh, but I see. The department that he was in charge of was the vegetarian option of the dormitory kitchen. And so I went out and I bought my first cookbook called Cooking Creatively with Natural Foods, and I still have it. And I started cooking out of that cookbook. Wow.
0: And and so this is 72. 72. And I mean, f- fast forward many decades, and it's La Brea Bakery. I'm not that old. Well, I'm just saying, when La Brea <laughs> yeah, how Bakery. Yeah, about a couple decades. Okay, a couple decades. What, what in between? I mean, were you, did you well, try something else, or did you think, yeah, maybe this food thing is what I want to do?
1: No, you know, I am one of the lucky ones that figured out my life's calling early on you right i mean i think about all the people that get up every day and go to work and hate what they're doing every single day and i feel very fortunate and very lucky that i live my life the way i think i was meant to or the Mm. way i enjoy it or the way that gives me a lot of meaning you know i never graduated from College. I stayed there for the next three and a half years. And over the summer, um, school's out. I I got a jobs at uh, what then was the um, sort of the trendy little French bistros back in Los Angeles. Uh, and some of them are still around, uh, where I made tuna nissois. I learned how to make an omelet, a souffle. Right. You know, just the typical French... Little cafe, and you just came in
0: as a cook. You, you, and I just
1: came in as a cook. And in my senior year, I was studying for my finals, and I and writing a paper, and not really very much, uh, uh, not 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 very uh, enthused about it, and thinking I don't even know why I'm doing this. I there's nothing I want to do with a, a degree. I want to cook. Well,
0: and what was your degree in? Theoretically, what would you be doing now if you didn't, uh, if you'd followed that path?
1: Well, at that time, you know, I entered, uh, I don't know how college is now, but you had to enter with a major. So I know that I entered as a political science major thinking, I think I'll be a lawyer because my dad was a lawyer, you know, but pretty quickly on, I switched, uh, at Sonoma State, there's a very small school at that time that was uh, affiliated with Sonoma State, it was called Hutchins School, and there was just maybe like 12 people in this school. 12 or 14 people, and it was a liberal arts school. And so th- I, w- I would have been a liberal arts uh, major. I w- major, or right. I would have had a degree in liberal arts, and I'm not sure what I would be doing. But uh, in my senior year, I remember sitting there in the library, and I called up my my uh, parents. I think I spoke with my father, and I said, I'm dropping out. I I want to cook. I do not want to continue education i mean i had one more semester left right i could have just, just
0: i mean you i would ima- i can imagine this conversation with your dad saying
1: what are, what are you talking about you got one semester left nope and that wasn't really? the conversation oh. which was very unusual for that time because you got to think about it you got to turn back the clock to that time people or professional parents would not have been proud as they are today to say my kid wants to cook, or my mm. kid wants to go to cooking school, or my kid wants to be a chef. Now, people just boast about it, right? right they're right. they're so enthusiastic. Firstly, they love to eat. They know the potential for cooks and chefs these days. You know, with uh, with uh, products, with television, with with books. There's a, a lot of prestige behind the field now in the United States, where there really wasn't then. So Mm. my parents could have said anything. And, you know, if I remember correctly, and uh, neither of my parents are around anymore for me to ask them, but I just remember a pause on the phone, and my dad said, that sounds good to me, but I want you to go to the Cordon Bleu. And Mm. I didn't even know what that was, you know? (laughs) I mean, and I'm like, okay, sure, I'll go there. And And you went to London. Well, I went to London. I signed up. It was a two-year or something like that, a year-and-a-half waiting list. I knew that I was going to be going there in September of 1977, mm. which I did. Um, but when I dropped out of school, I uh, went on to say to them that, uh, let me think. Yeah, so when I dropped out, I, at that point I said, but you know, I don't feel like I should go out and get a job a paying job in a restaurant because for the last three summers I've done that and I know what it's like. You get kind of stuck in a corner Mm -hmm. doing the same thing day after day. I would rather see all parts of the kitchen. What I would like to do is research and find a restaurant that I uh, was enthusiastic about the food that they did and offer my services for free. Mm -hmm. And therefore I would have the liberty to work in all different stations because they weren't paying for me. And that's what I did. And where did you, where did you start that process? So it was, um, I was living in Sonoma County, so I wanted to stay in that area. But um, there was nothing in the county that really appealed to me. But one county over, um, Marin County, so that's in between Sonoma County and uh, San Francisco, mm-hmm. was a fantastic restaurant, no longer there. It was called 464 Magnolia. And it was run by a guy by the name of Michael Goldstein, who I still stay in touch with. Uh, But what I loved about it was that it had a very similar philosophy to what was pretty new at that time also, which was Chez meaning that they were um, very behind using uh, as many local products as possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, California, predominantly a California wine list. But also, what I loved about it is that it was run by a college educated, self taught cook. And so, in those days, most of the restaurants that were doing sort of food that seemed more interesting was French food, mm-hmm. and it was run by some pretty difficult French men. Mm-hmm and i wanted to be in a kitchen was which was a lot more open minded a little bit more flexible not as set in its ways and i i knew really or you know very early on that the ingredients that i wanted to use or work with or be inspired with by were really fresh seasonal produce and that's what i got at 464 magnolia
0: i I mean today we go to a restaurant and we sort of expect that if you go to a a proper place you expect fresh seasonal local if possible sustainable um but back then i i I don't think that that was sort of that wasn't on trend
1: no not at all and that's why it was rare and i was lucky to find this restaurant um and i was you know what i loved about it was that in the kitchen all of the very small um, purveyors that we used uh, would come in and just they were not only the owners of these businesses but also the salespeople. So very small meat company we dealt with, very small fish company that we dealt with. People would bring us produce that they were growing themselves. And it was a very exciting uh, place to be because, as you pointed out, it was very unique, but mm. it was there that I really um, sort of uh, sort of established what would become and has became my food philosophy, and I've never really um, ventured out. You know, mm-hmm. it's always been food uh, that uh, food that is fresh. Um, I've always been very careful to choose. Uh, the ingredients that that I cook with, but they oh, it always was that I wanted to make sure that I was um, kind of influenced and inspired by what was the best of the best.
0: Hmm. And and you sort of touched on this a moment ago as a woman in the kitchen at the time when you know the, the top chefs were these sort of overbearing Frenchmen that you sort of alluded to, was it m- difficult to sort of find your way as a woman at that time, or, w- or was it as it is today?
1: You know, I, I get asked that question a lot, and I have to say in all honesty, thank my lucky stars, but I found my way into kitchens, and I didn't work in that many kitchens, you know, from this restaurant, 464 Magnolia. After that, I worked at Michael's Restaurant here in Santa Monica, and I went on to Spago in, uh, in the, the original Spago up above sunset, mm-hmm. probably open before you were born. <laughs> I was there. I did a one year stint in New York with my then husband, but we were the chef and I was the, pac- he was the chef and I was the pastry chef. And that was really the handful of restaurants that I worked at. And, and all of them, um, were run by very talented, uh, but very sort of open-minded hmm. chefs that treated women with the utmost respect. So I never had to uh, find my way in a kitchen that was male-dominated and maybe not so welcoming hmm. to women in the field.
0: That's good to hear. Yep. And and so you, you started... Store, sort of use this as your base, you go to London, you learn the sort of classical ways of food preparation and cooking and all of that. Is there anything about the London years that, that stays with you or is it, is everything part of who you are today?
1: Well, you know, I'm really, uh, first of all, I'm, I went to the London Cordon Bleu, by the way, because I didn't speak French. Mm. And so it would have been quite difficult for <laughs> me to, uh, to, uh, you know get my education if if that language was such a issue right. so i went to the one in london and actually at that time the one in london and still does had an excellent reputation so i'm not putting it down that i did not train in france mm-hmm. but i tra- I've trained in london and i'm really glad i did it because i i really learned the basics of well a french cuisine mm-hmm. but so many of those techniques i still use today maybe not so much a lot of the ingredients. Maybe I have uh, uh, worked around some of the processes, but I got a great foundation. And, you know, in today's kitchen, um, the way kitchens are set up in most restaurants, um, and at least the ones that I've worked at, um, because for, for many different reasons, including, well, time, you know, you really can only work an eight-hour shift in a kitchen, these days. It's not uh, shift pay where you could come in at seven in the morning and stay until midnight. Mm. Like it used to be right. Right. And so because of that eight hour limitation, the kitchen, most kitchens are divided up between prep cooks in the day. If you're, if you're only open for dinner as we are here mm-hmm. and line cooks at night. And so many of those line cooks miss out on so many of the basics mm. in cooking. Right. That if they didn't go to school, they may never know how to make a stock or make a mayonnaise, you know? Yeah. L- basic, basic cooking, you know, techniques. Yeah. So I'm really grateful that I learned all those. Um, where did it get me? Well, I wanted to be a line cook, possibly a chef. Mm-hmm. I never kind of thought beyond maybe I'll own a restaurant one day or write a cookbook or have six restaurants one day. I just thought I want to be a line cook. And when I returned from uh, London, I went back to the restaurant that I had been working at and I became the lunch sous chef. And so I got to, or I got the chance to practice all that I learned in the, at the Cordon Bleu. And, you know, I would say 80% of it was sort of savory and then, small bit of dessert making
0: and this was up in marin or were you at spago at this no
1: this was back in marin i went back to the restaurant that i'd worked at and i was the lunch chef um and i stayed there for a year and then i went back to europe just to travel Mm. not not to go to school but just to uh just to travel and when i returned i decided to come back to los angeles because uh at that time and this now we're talking 1979 um It seemed like L.A. was where it was really happening as far as the restaurant scene. Hmm. And Michael's Restaurant had just opened, and I landed a job there, uh, not as a line cook and savory as I had wanted, but an assistant pastry chef, which I really was not interested in, but I thought, look, this is going to get my foot in the door, and um, hopefully I'll be able to transition over to to the hot side, right? Um, but I ended up loving it.
0: Isn't that interesting? Because I, I feel like so many young people today, whether it's in cooking or whatever it is, they sort of have this image of here's what I'm going to do. And maybe if, you know, a, a young version of you today were offer, was offered that assistant pastry chef job, you might say, that's not what I, that's not my passion. I don't want to do that. And then you miss out. You no, out.
1: absolutely. And, you know, there was two things that I did that I think that were very beneficial. And they weren't two things that I weren't taught, but somehow I intuitively knew them. And one was take a job just to get your foot in the door. And no one ever told me that, but mm-hmm. I kind of thought that that's what you're supposed to do. And it turns out it is what you're supposed to do. Do anything to get where you want to be. Right. Right, And then work your way up. But the other and I was uh, talking about this with some friends the other day, is that in Europe, the tradition for uh, certainly for cooks was at a very young age, you either decided that you were going to complete, say, junior high or high school even, but probably high school. Mm -hmm. Or if you were going to apprentice at a restaurant. Uh, Someone like Wolfgang started apprenticing at a restaurant when he was 13 years old. Mm. Uh, His mother worked at a hotel. He wanted to cook, and so that's what he did. But that was not something that was common here in the States, to work for free or even call it an apprenticeship at a restaurant. And yet, somewhere there, I kind of figured out that that's what I wanted to do.
0: And so you, do you recall the sort of, was it an epiphany moment or was it just the, over a period of time that you realized that there was something to be said about pastry and,
1: and bread and. Well, that, the the epiphany came when I was in, at cooking in my college dorm within the first month or so cooking mm. it was an epiphany i think a light bulb or light actually went out i mean i, I went what is it went what off happens the, oh, the light bulb, the light bulb off. goes off yeah, yeah. right and then you what yeah falling, find your calling or whatever your epiphany yeah. is right i remember it so clearly being in that dormitory that dormitory kitchen and it was a new kitchen it was all stainless steel and it was a kitchen where i was working on a stainless steel um, counter and kind of eye level or a little above was another shelf where you stack plates or something like that. And I remember looking out and thinking, huh, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And that I remember very, very clearly. Wow. As far as, say, the pastry chef, or, or, going in, or loving the pastries, that mm. was slowly, you know. Mm. I was a little nervous when I started. I, you know, wasn't sh- I wasn't, I um, wasn't, I didn't have the confidence in the pastries because at the Cordon Bleu, I really, that was the area that I was absolutely the weakest, you know. <laughs> my um, my soufflés wouldn't rise, my bavoise wouldn't set, you know, it went on and on. Like, there was always some issue in pastry that was not, it Was not at a very high level, I should say. This is Nancy um, Silverton, who so, eventually <laughs> founds La Brea Bakery, and you no. and, and you—that was your weakest part of your yeah. repertoire. It was the absolute weakest. So it wasn't. It, it was my love for it was slow, but what was interesting to me is that I didn't hate it, and I was lucky enough, and I think that um, probably a lot of people had similar experiences as i did as far as their first job now remember it wasn't my first job in a kitchen but it was my first job doing pastries was i was lucky enough to work with this very young genius that opened up the pastry world to me and so having that first person as a mentor is just so important hmm. And and th- that that person being who? His name was Jimmy Brinkley. Uh, he had come from a restaurant in Los Angeles and in, in uh, on La Cienega, I believe. Yeah, it was La Cienega, probably the premier French restaurant of the time. It was called Le mm. Now, mm. when I said, you know, you'd think, okay, he came from this French restaurant, and he was just so gifted. Um, you're already probably thinking forties, fifties, sixties, some right. guy that's been around a long time. I think he was like twenty-two years old or something. Wow. But like a genius. And what he did for me and working with him, um, that was so inspirational is that he I just thought that pastry and pastry making was so restrictive. And mm-hmm. if you didn't measure everything out absolutely accurately, then it wouldn't work and he just showed me how um that pastries are not like that that sure there's certain or in cooking is the same though maybe pastry a little bit more that Mm -hmm. there's certain scientific details that you have to pay attention to so eggs will curdle at a certain temperature and if you forget to add the sugar then your cake's going to be tasteless and dry, you know, and on and on and on. If there's too much butter, then it's going to be greasy, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's certain basic uh, formulas, you know, to that you have to follow. But besides that, there's so much room for interpretation mm-hmm. and creativity. And I loved it. And I loved uh, also the fact that we would show up at 4.30 in the morning and no one was in the kitchen and it was quiet um, but most of all, what I loved is that everything that we made, we did ourselves. Rather than has, how I was explaining to you, how a kitchen pretty much is, um, the, how a kitchen pretty much is laid out, where there's a morning crew right. that does a lot of the work, and then you come in and you take the work that they did, and then you turn it into tonight's, you know, dinner. Right. Yeah. But we did everything ourselves, and so we could see it through from beginning to end and i loved that part about
0: it because you're uh, admittedly a control freak admittedly a control freak <laughs> and right. so that that was perfect for you uh-huh it and just
1: it really was where i belonged in the kitchen and it's still my comfort zone you know hmm. i mean that's where i am the most comfortable i'm much more comfortable with a rolling pin than i am with a knife
0: ah. um I don't want to skip over too much, but but I want to compress as much as we can. You go to Spago.
1: So Michael's for uh, two years right. While I was at Michael's, I took a, like a six-month break, mm-hmm. and I went over to France, and I studied very intensive uh, pastry mm-hmm. uh, at a uh, pastry school, uh, Lenore, it's called, and it was fantastic outside of Paris, And I was, and I worked in a bakery there. So I was at Michael's for probably a year and a half, this in paris for uh half a year and then i went over to spago Mm -hmm. to be the opening pastry chef for wolfgang who i didn't know until i met him over at spago yeah wolfgang well wolfgang doesn't really need a last name (laughs)
0: well just in (laughs) case people don't know we're talking about wolfgang puck so you and and so at a certain point though you decide and is it with your then husband mark peel that you're going to start A restaurant or a bakery or both? Or how did that come about?
1: Well, um, working with Wolfgang and working at Spago was an extraordinary experience. Uh, Probably I, very likely, I could have still been working there today, Mm -hmm. uh, taking into account how well we got along and how much uh, freedom he gave me. But my then husband, uh, who uh, was the... Chef de cuisine for Wolfgang, Um, he needed to branch out on his own. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Wolfgang gave me a lot more freedom than he gave Mark. Uh, And we were uh, kind of. Stolen away from Spago to uh, New York. We were poached is the word uh, by a guy who's no longer alive. His name is uh, Warner Leroy. He owned a a restaurant, very popular restaurant called Maxwell's Plum and another restaurant called uh, Tavern on the Green. Huge institutions. Anyway, he wanted us to come out. He wanted to turn Maxwell's Plum into Spago. Uh, And it was just a really difficult situation and it didn't work out. And we were in New York for less than a year. But felt ready and had the confidence to open our own restaurant. And we thought that would be in New York because I loved living in New York. Mm. Uh, That's where I wanted to be. Found a little space in Soho. uh, Didn't um, sign any leases but went to Italy. Rented a house for a month in Tuscany. And it was there in Tuscany where we really, for the first time in our relationship, got to cook together and cook a lot and Buy off the buy you know vegetables off the side of the street and make really simple flavorful food and it was there that we really realized that it would not be possible to make the kind of food we were loving eating that summer in New York hmm. and we would have to return to California because
0: you didn't have access to those fresh the fresh produce or, or whatever
1: exactly you know New York has changed a lot since uh, this we're talking about 1986 say. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the green market there is very big and, and all the chefs are getting all these farmers to grow uh, vegetables that, that they want. And it's a much different scene than it was then. then during the winter, and I don't mean during the summer, but during the winter uh, and most of spring there was, you know, a few carrots and some iceberg lettuce to buy and some green strawberries <laughs> from that were coming in from Los Angeles, you know, or Ventura County, you know. Right. Um there was not the produce and to us it became very clear spending that time in Italy that it's the fresh produce that we need to create the dishes that we want to cook and so we came back to Los Angeles.
0: And so the story goes your then husband, Mark Peel, is this is Campanile, right? The- and that's
1: when we st- that's when we um, came back and started looking for a, a restaurant location for mm-hmm. a yet unnamed restaurant. Um, not thinking about La Brea Bakery until we started looking when I came back from Los Angeles, or sorry, came back to when we came back to Los Angeles from New York. Uh, lucky enough Wolfgang said come on back and you know work for me again until you find what you want and so that was great because we had some income but also it was there that Wolfgang uh, appointed me to come up with a bread program for him at Spago he was mm-hmm. very dissatisfied with the bread that um, that they were purchasing and wanted to bake his own bread in. House And so I started experimenting. And so that's where I got my hands a little bit wet in the dough mm-hmm. um, uh, and loving that too and realizing what an important part of a meal bread was, but also realizing that it just was very difficult to have that kind of bread program at the back of a restaurant kitchen and kind of compete with space, both to make the bread but also to uh, to uh, share the walk-in with uh, you know loaves that were being proofed overnight, and so when Mark and I started looking for a restaurant space, we kind of kept in the back of our minds if we could find a space that was big enough that we could also include a wholesale and retail bakery, so it would be a bakery that did not compete for space with inside a restaurant kitchen, mm-hmm. we would do that. And we were lucky enough to find the space on La Brea that was Campanile and La Brea Bakery. And actually La Brea Bakery opened up six months before Campanile did.
0: And, and according to the lore, you were there slaving away in the, in the bakery, which eventually became this institution, La Brea Bakery. And there wasn't even anyone working at the register. Would not when understand. we first
1: opened, right. yeah, we realized that was one part. that I thought, oh, yeah, someone's got to take the money kind of thing. Or, oh, yeah, we need a cash register. Like, you know, so, um, you know, immersed in, you know, in trying to um, develop these, you know, bread recipes. Uh, and then once developed and once uh, getting close to opening, uh, well, making the bread yeah. that didn't even think about that part of the business. And so I'll never forget the first day when the door opens and my mouth opened, you know, my jaw dropped. And I thought, oh, now what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to sell the bread too? And, and that became a,
0: a, an institution. And it, uh, as did Campanile, the restaurant that it, was, that it was right next door to, which is gone, sadly, today. But uh, it has
1: a great restaurant there, Republic, yes. and a bakery. Right, y- and yes. their bakery there. And so it's fantastic.
0: It's, no, the, the, yeah. what's there is, but it's yeah. not what what you created. No. La Brea Bakery still exists, but not under your name.
1: Right. I ended up selling La Brea Bakery in uh, two thousand and one, uh, and La Brea Bakery stayed at that location until I don't know, right before Republic opened. and So now it's relocated a couple blocks up the street. So it's still on La Brea. Yeah. But at that time. You know, I created this bakery for the love and the passion of making of making bread and I got to do it. I gotta mix it, I got to shape it, mm-hmm. I got to bake it, and for a day or two sell it. Right. <laughs> and as we got busier, um I had to eliminate part of that bread making process mm-hmm. because Uh, It just expanded. So at one point, I had to give up the mixing of the dough because that became a whole shift of mixing not only, you know, several batches of different doughs. Uh, But I always baked the dough at night uh, while we were there on La Brea, which was about two years. And then we expanded to um, a a much larger bakery uh, that was on or still is on Washington Boulevard. Mm -hmm. And I baked there for about another year. And I slowly started pulling away from the bakery because it was so much larger than I ever envisioned. Mm. And my, I I needed to train a lot of other people to, you know, to staff the demand. Yeah.
0: And uh, you eventually sold it. And do you, do you miss it? Do you feel like your baby is in good hands or do you when you buy a loaf of la brea bakery at the ralph's or wherever you go do you think i would have done it a little bit differently or
1: well you know again going back to you know what i love let's f- flip or what how do you call it turn the turn back the dial no we're know. turning it ahead to okay. today okay so what flash, is that? Fo- let's flash, flash forward. forward you know what i love about my restaurants here in Los Angeles is that the three of them are right next to each other. Yeah. And I, I get in here in the morning and I just never stop spending time in each one mm. of them. And then at night, when I'm in town, you can find me behind the mozzarella bar. Yeah. Not so true in Singapore, although I love it, and not right. so true in um, Newport Beach because I just can't be there. Right. So when I compare that to the bakery, When the bakery got so large that I could no longer be a part of the process, um, sort of emotionally, I wasn't as much in sync. Mm -hmm. Um, So would I have done it differently? The only thing I would have done differently is I never would have grown it. Mm. But if I never would have grown it... um, I wouldn't be maybe in the fortunate situation that I am today, yeah. right? So I guess that's the price you pay or anybody pays for growth. Yeah. Um I, I wanna But to I'm talk- lucky, I just wanna say I'm so lucky that when I did La Brea Bakery, and this is really important to me, is that when I did it or when I um when I started La Brea Bakery back in nineteen eighty nine, there were not the books, there were not the schools, there were not the bakers to talk to. And so Everything that I learned about bread and the bread-making process, I pretty much taught myself. Mm. And that is very gratifying.
0: I'm sure it is. Yeah. And and we were all the lucky recipients of it. <laughs> I'm going to take a short break, but uh, when we come back, I want to talk to you about how this wonderful uh, series of restaurants uh, came to be. We're at Osteria Matza uh, in, uh, are we saying Los Angeles or Hollywood? Oh,
1: I don't know. I say Hollywood, but it really is Los Angeles. But right. it's close well, we're at,
0: we're, at Hi, we're at Melrose and, and Highland, Highland. If you're right. if you're visiting L.A., we're going to take a short break. We're going to talk about this uh, beautiful restaurant, and then we're going to talk about uh, Nancy's new cookbook when we come back. Introducing the completely redesigned Mercedes-Benz E-Class. It's everything you need it to be, and so much more. Frank Buckley Interviews is presented by the Mercedes-Benz Dealers of Southern California. Visit mbsocal.com for dealer details. We're back with Nancy Silverton, and um, we are at what uh, uh, L.A. Times restaurant critic Jonathan Gold calls the mozza plex. Right. (laughs) Uh, I just interviewed Jonathan the other day, and we were both talking about how much we love you and your food. Um, How
1: did this place come to be? You want the short version or a version? A
0: version, whatever you want.
1: So when we talk about the mozza plex, that's because there's three restaurants on the corner. Um, What there was supposed to be was one restaurant. Uh, this one well a Osteria right so let's go back to my partnership with Mario Batali and Joe Bastianich so uh, and forgive me but everything always seems like yesterday and then I <laughs> realized well it's more than yesterday because Pizzeria celebrated its 10-year oh anniversary in November and you think of how long does it take to put together a restaurant meaning sign a lease design a restaurant Pass all the inspections and open. It's usually close to two years, even though you think I'll do it in a year. It usually is at least a year and a half or two. So we're talking at least thirteen years ago. Mm. I can't it's, believe it. I know, it. and it's still.
0: And, by the way, it's you know, it's still difficult to get a, a reservation here. It's not. Uh, it's have, not a piece of cake. It,
1: All three of the restaurants there are uh, at the pizzeria and osteria. There's two bars, uh, right? Pizza a pizza bar at the pizzeria at the osteria, a uh, a mozzarella bar at the at kisbaka. The chef's so you can get in. That's walk in only. By the way, so don't tell me you can't come. Um, But anyway, say 13 years ago, um, I was ready to leave. Campanile, my husband and I had separated, and one of us had to go, and it makes, made the most sense for me. So I was going to leave Campanile, but not retire by any means. Right. Um, I wanted to open another restaurant, and I wasn't quite sure what it was. Uh, Mario Batali had approached me around that time and asked if I would come to New York and run his baking program for his newly, new-to-be-open restaurant, new-to-open restaurant, uh, Del Posto. And as flattered as I was and how much I love uh, living in New York, at that time, my youngest was 10, and I could not leave Los Angeles. And I said, but hey, why don't you come to Los Angeles and let's open a restaurant together here? And he didn't miss a beat. It was, nope, I don't like Los Angeles. (laughs) The people go to sleep at nine o'clock at night. And besides, everyone's on a diet. I would never live or own a restaurant in Los Angeles. End of conversation. All right, I thought, you know. I went to Italy that summer because I spend my summers in Italy. I'm lucky enough to have a little house in Umbria. And it was there that I had a very well-known chef, one of my mentors, and actually cooked at Chez Panisse when I used to eat there when it was newly opened. His name, for those of you that don't know that, his name is Jeremiah Tower. Have you heard of him? No. Okay, wonderful, wonderful chef. And he left Chez Panisse and went on to open a restaurant called Stars in San Francisco. Very, very popular. But Mm -hmm. he uh, was a wonderful, uh, fantastic cook, great authority on French food, but also a great American cook. And he... Had been renting a place in Umbria near me. And I had him over for lunch. And I was very nervous about what to serve, of course, because this was someone that I looked so right. far up to. Um, anyway, I had just been at a Casa Ficcio, a little cheese store where they made the cheese there at their farm. And I had bought a bunch of mozzarella and some fresh cow's milk cheese and other, other fresh cow's milk cheese. And I thought, I'll just do a lunch of cheese and make all these little condiments that go with it. And that's what I did. And he loved the lunch. And it was sort of at the end of the lunch, he said, oh, by the way, if you ever get to Rome, which I always spend a night or two in Rome before I go back to Los Angeles Mm -hmm. over the summer, a new restaurant just opened up. It's called Obica. And it's a mozzarella bar. And they serve nothing but mozzarella. And they do all sorts of things with mozzarella. And I thought, wow, I'm going there, yeah. which I did. I loved how focused that restaurant was. And I came back to Los Angeles, and I must have run into Mario somewhere. Maybe I came back to Los Angeles and was in New York or somewhere around the country. I ran into him shortly after that. And I told him, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to open up a mozzarella bar. And just as quickly as he had said no, the previous time where I invited him to open a restaurant with me, yeah. he said, I'm in. And like, I feel like two days later he sent Joe Bastianich, his business uh, partner who sort of handles all the business leases in the front of the house of his restaurants before he became a movie star or a, a television star, right? star as he is today, right. came out and we were looking for locations. And like, it happens, first of all, so much quicker than I ever expected as far as them coming out and looking for locations. But the other thing was is that when I was uh, in Italy that summer, I thought, you know, I want to open a really small restaurant where I do everything myself, back to my early days at Michael's. Right? Um, and I'll be behind a counter, and I'll serve the guests. And it'll be a really simple menu. And now look what I got—like this so <laughs> empire.
0: Really, so really, but, it was—it was. You were going to just do what's in the middle of the osteria here, which yeah, is the and mozzarella not this bar.
1: Location, but see. So what happened? Yeah, So after I went to Rome and I saw this this uh, restaurant Obika, and I yeah. thought that's the concept that I want to open. Um, that's what I wanted to have—just that little bar by myself. So when Joe and Mario got involved, it obviously got right. a lot. Bigger now, um, we were looking at a couple spaces, and then I got a call from the uh, not the landlord, the leaseholder of this restaurant. He was operating. Well, I don't even remember. It it. was called Alessi, Alessi or Alessio? No, Alessi. It was called Alessi. Okay. And next door was a pizzeria called Piccolini, Hmm. Um, and his restaurant didn't expand as far as where Kispaka is. That was um, actually the Melrose Mac, which moved to the space next to them. They bought that building. And so that was vacant, and that's where we put in Kispaca. But what the leaseholder of this restaurant had was what we now know as the Osteria, and then also the Pizzeria. But he didn't want to sell the Pizzeria or give up the lease. He wanted to keep, he wanted to just give up the lease of the Osteria. And by the way, before he owned it, there was... And the owner was a guy. I don't remember his last name, but his name was Emilio. And he was a very famous Italian restaurateur. He Mm. used to play the accordion in this restaurant. And it had a big fountain in the middle. And it was a very big Hollywood hangout. But anyway, his name was um, Emilio. Mm -hmm. But Antonio got the lease from Emilio. And he wanted to give up the Osteria. But I had already... Um, had thought years before that one day I would love to figure out how to make the pizza of my dreams. I had tasted sort of the beginnings of the pizza of my dreams, both in Arizona at Chris Bianco's pizzeria and then in Rome at a little bakery. And when I say it's the pizzeria of my dreams, it was really the crust of my dreams. And coming from a bread baker... It had sort of a lot of the um, qualities in a well-crafted bread, only a lot thinner. Right. Um, And so when this opportunity came up, I thought, I want that pizzeria also, because this is going to force me to teach myself. To be a great pizza person. To be a pizza person, and that was the big argument, and why this whole building took so long to put together because he didn't want to give it up. Oh. Then he did. Then he didn't, and did. And I think we negotiated for about eight months, but finally, he threw in the towel, and we were able to take over both spaces.
0: Yeah, and I got to tell people who uh, are not from LA who haven't been here, it uh, it, it was a hit immediately. I mean, you guys opened the doors and the tables were full. It yep. hasn't, hasn't stopped, has it?
1: We've been very lucky.
0: And so to what do you attribute that? I mean, I, I, I started this interview by saying that great service, great food, um,
1: what is it? What's the secret sauce? It's that. It's great service and great food, and that's something that we really, really strive for. Yeah. We're not always successful,
0: but we strive for every night. You can't, you know, it can't be a hundred percent every night, but I have to say when I've been here, it's, I mean, there are some things that, that, uh, just so wonderful when, when you are here. And, and I wonder though, for people who would step into a place like this, especially if you haven't been to Italy, right. And in Italy, the way you eat is not sort of the Italian food of what I grew up with. Big red sauce, meatballs, a gigantic plate of spaghetti and meatballs or you know a thick piece of pizza and that was the meal you walk out waddling out because you're full and you know my wife whose family is from northern Italy I realized you, you just have a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this and then the meal is done and it's you don't feel full you don't feel you don't waddle out. No, it's not all about
1: the portion size. <laughs> right.
0: And it's but it's it's also wonderful uh, basic tastes of as you said fresh fresh mozzarella, fresh fresh uh, vegetables. Yeah, no,
1: they're just such satisfying flavors, right? Yeah. And just the combination of the uh of the the herbs, of the olive oil, of the garlic, yeah. right? that's so satisfying you don't have to overeat right and and because I, you know you're because you're so satisfied yeah. right and so
0: for someone who's never been here take us through a meal what would you recommend you know for a first time where visitor, the osteria or the pizzeria to the osteria
1: okay so at the osteria it's more so the pizzeria you know it's very informal you know yeah. and there's uh, obviously the the answer is very easy for that, right? Because there's several antipasti that are just delicious, Mm -hmm. you know, most of them uh, vegetable-based, right? And then, of course, pizzas and then there's great salads and it's an easy menu. Here, we um, sort of based it on a much more traditional Italian meal, which is a three-course meal. an 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 a pasta, uh, a pasta, or a primo, Mm -hmm. And a secondi a main, yeah, and that's how we like to guide our diners, including maybe sharing a pasta. Yeah, now our pasta portions are not large; they're not the spaghetti and meatballs of your childhood, by the way. They are, uh, they are Italian
0: portions,
1: which are not large, right? Um, But still, if somebody did want to have a three-course meal. But and have a three course meal experience, but not uh, not that hungry. Uh, we really recommend to share one of those three three courses.
0: I I mean I have to tell you, the affettati misti with the gnocco fritto. Oh my god, the the gnocco fritto is uh, I, I have to have it every time.
1: Great because I love are afatati and I love uh the noco frito and the noco frito is a condiment uh and it's usually used with just prosciutto just kind of flopped over it right yeah. and it's a fried it's fried dough yeah that's very puffy. It is so good. And it's it's wonderful with the sliced meats.
0: Yeah it is fantastic. Um I want to talk to you now about your cookbook. Great. And it's called Matza at Home, more than one hundred and fifty crowd pleasing recipes for relaxed family style entertaining, and you wrote it with uh, uh, Carolyn Careno. Right, and it, what I love about it is that so many of us, when we try to entertain at home, you're just overwhelmed with what can you know, what should I do, you know, what should be the main, you know, how do how do I start, and you've organized it very simply, and. One thing that struck me uh, Nancy Silverton who is known now for this Italian wonderful place here for the the bread one of your go-tos is the humble hamburger.
1: Yeah, I love a hamburger party. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was shocked. Well, you know, I just want to um uh clarify for our listeners yeah. that uh the name of the book is Mozza at Home. Uh and so probably a lot of people are thinking that it's a chef's way of mm. giving home cooks recipes that they use in their restaurant, right. but made simple. Yeah. And that's not no. what this book is. In no. fact, I maybe, ex- maybe there's a few uh, of the dishes that we actually use here, yeah. but most of them we don't um, uh, for a number of reasons. A lot of them are not Italian. Um, But also, nothing in this book is plated individually. It's all meant to be shared. Family style. Family style. And it's all meant to be served at room temperature. And that's what's great about entertaining in this relaxed way is that the host is not spending their time in the kitchen while their guests are sitting down. Yeah. And the host is sweating trying to... (laughs) plate each course, getting it to the table while it's hot and not being a member of their own party. It's not fun. No, this is a fun way to entertain because you're there, but it's also relaxed in the sense that you can start a couple days before and bring the food out to be at room temperature, Right, bring it back up, Uh, start early that morning and just kind of complete dish after dish. But also what's great is that when I think of a party uh, most of the parties I have are in my backyard with 25 to 50 people or more. Um, and I set out a long spread, and, and uh, so it's more like a buffet, right? Yeah. And so people start to pile up food on their plate. But what's important when you do that or lay out that spread is that all the flavors go together. Mm. Which is not the case in a potluck because the potluck there's nobody in charge and everyone's just bringing any dish they want to want to bring and inevitably there's a few that ruin the flavor of everything else. So, the book is divided into um, chapters where there's a protein and then all the dishes that would taste great with that protein, but. I'm not suggesting that you make every single one of them, right? So that's how it differs from a menu cookbook. You know, a menu cookbook is usually make this menu. Yeah, that's and, not what this is. And I found
0: it, I found it very approachable, and it, things that I could make. And I, yeah, I'm, some I'm, are a
1: little bit more difficult than right. others, or a little bit more time-consuming. Others are not. Right. You know, I was very careful to use very sturdy ingredients that can sit on a table because I think when you have a um, casual, say, buffet then I think people casually show up whenever they want. And it's important to have the food look and taste as good for the people that are on time and the stragglers that come an hour and a half later, right? right? And so I was very careful about these sturdy ingredients. Um, and then there's a few of the spreads, which I call them, and one of them being the hamburger spread, which I think people love to personalize. Yeah. Yeah their food so what better way than hamburgers and then recipes for all sorts of different condiments uh to put on those hamburgers to um make them your own but also it's great subject for conversation yeah you, you know it doesn't matter how old you are you get so excited by what you create, and you know you say <laughs> well, i put this on and you should really try this and the order i like it is better this way And oh no i never put you know yeah so it's just sort of uh it makes um yeah it makes the meal itself more interactive
0: yeah uh, and and i noticed that you uh worked with someone to try to replicate the in and out uh, animal style yeah. and this uh-huh. the
1: secret sauce
0: right do you think you achieved it
1: well i never knew what it, an in and out animal style for some reason i thought that meant no bun right i'm, I'm not sure why i thought that cuz animal style you that's
0: can, that's protein. Oh, that's
1: protein, right. Yeah. So for whatever it was, I thought, oh, they were... Because I only started hearing about this, you know, whatever, 15 years ago or so. <laughs> so I thought, oh, that... And, and that was the time where people were really trying to eliminate carbohydrates. It wasn't gluten as today, but it was just carbohydrates in general. Yeah. So I thought that was an in-and-ounce answer. But it's not. Animal style means that it was um, uh, spread with mustard uh-huh. and then griddled, and it gives it a great crust. And I love that uh, because I like my hamburgers really rare really rare yeah. but I also like a uh, sear on them and it's it's easily achieved with that mustard
0: well let me let me just put you on the spot in case people don't buy the book and God forbid you should not buy the book but because you should but if they don't one sort of dish that you could quickly explain here that people can take away from our conversation that Nancy Silverton will walk you through the dish right now. Is there any, is something that you can think of that you can take Talk some, about take putting me through? on the
1: spot. Um,
0: <laughs> Maybe the, how about the... Uh, you pick one and I'll walk okay, you through how, it. Okay, how about the the staff uh, chicken thighs? Well, funny you meal. should
1: say that because um, I'm going to make them when I leave you today. Okay. And I'm going to make them because I haven't made them for about two years about myself that? because of the book. Uh, and I'm going to be doing them on the Today Show oh. in January. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I have like 30 seconds to do them, so I better remember what I'm doing. But right. the staff meal chicken thighs, I call them staff meal chicken thighs because uh, at 1130 every day at the Osteria is our staff meal. And my favorite uh, protein at the our staff meal is chicken. And I got to say, I get it probably six days out of seven. But every day I walk in, and I say to Sal, Sal, what's for lunch? And I'll say <laughs> chicken. And they have a thousand ways of doing it. But my favorite way is really just the simplest. And um, I added what I think is really the key to it. And by the way, we use chicken thighs only. And I love chicken thighs. I think they have the most flavor. They're the juiciest. I noticed that. Um, you
0: have at least and, three different chicken yeah, thigh dishes in this book.
1: Because it's such an easy protein. It's so They're so easy to make, right? Yeah. Um, and everybody loves chicken. Yeah. Um, But what's um, the little twist that I put on them that uh, Sal, our our kitchen manager in the day, doesn't do is that I found that if you um, prepare the chicken uh, thighs a day in advance, prepare them, meaning all you do is unwrap the package and lay them out on a plate or a sheet pan and let them sort of air dry in the refrigerator overnight, kind of um, mimicking what... um, Chinese chefs do with air-dried duck. Mm. It helps to make the skin a lot crisper, what this does. So right. overnight in the refrigerator. And then it's simply onions and sliced lemon and rosemary and um, and thyme, garlic, onions, into a hot oven for 35 to 40 minutes. Turn up the oven either to 500 or broil, and the last five minutes just crisp it up. And they're just delicious, crispy, really easy to make chicken thighs. And they're as delicious, hot, or at room temperature. And And it's a perfect party meal.
0: And the staff gets to eat that on a regular basis before the service begins. What what a wonderful way to start (laughs) the day. Um, And you would serve that with what?
1: And then um, I suggest serving it with uh, either a... um, uh, roasted root vegetables that also have some broccoli leaves, and I mean, sorry, some uh, Brussels sprout leaves and uh, some uh, mushrooms in it. Um, and I love those vegetables because I cook them in a sheet pan uh, separately, the different vegetables um, on the bottom of the oven, not on the bottom rack, but right on the bottom floor mm. of the oven, which gets them really caramelized. Mm. And then I serve it with a little yogurt sauce. That's a wonderful accompaniment. I'm doing some um, balsamic glazed uh, mushrooms, which I'll do on the show also. Those are terrific with it. The carrots that are on the cover of the of the book with some wheat berries, they're wonderful with it.
0: Yeah, and, and one thing, as you were talking about the yogurt sauce that reminded me of something you said in the book, which I thought was a really terrific tip, you often will drizzle whatever the sauce is uh, at that big long buffet table that you're talking about over that particular dish and then leave the the bowl there so that people right. know what it's supposed to go right. with. So
1: you kind of suggest right, but right. you never want to put as much as probably the dish needs because everything will get too soggy yeah. or the sauce will fall to the bottom of the bowl um, and so those are the kinds of tips that I've given throughout the book on how to have your Buffet table still looked presentable from the beginning to the way end.
0: One, One final question, and that is, in this book, you talk about the fact that there was a moment in time where you were spread so thin and you were running this empire, this growing empire, and maybe you had lost some of the passion or felt like you were on autopilot,
1: never lost the passion. Just never had the time Not to, the time to to cook, cook at home,
0: right? And and that es- escape one summer to Italy really sort of reignited you, right? And is it there still after all these years? Oh yeah,
1: that's my favorite, my favorite, favorite time that I spend in Italy is when I'm preparing for a party. Mm. I get up early. I make my list. I start to I have a big fireplace inside, but in the summertime all of my entertaining is, you know, outdoors, which is nice. Yeah. Um, but I start and I make one dish at a time. And I finish that dish and I lay it on my fireplace. And, you know, at eight o'clock in the morning it's very sparse. And by five o'clock in the afternoon, I've got about 12 plus platters there ready oh. to take outside and it's very uh, rewarding to see your masterpieces as they are completed
0: well please take a picture someday and, and send I it will. to me because that just sounds uh wonderful um nancy thank you so much for your time again the the cookbook is uh, matzah at home um you are a treasure ah, here in southern you. california you really are and uh, we're grateful for everything you've done uh, and congratulations! And if people want to be part of the party, come to uh, to matzah, yep. to the matzah plex, <laughs> where you'll where it's uh, open every day. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you're not a subscriber, I hope you'll do it today. It's free, of course, and it'll ensure that you won't miss a single episode of our podcast, which drops every week on Wednesday. You can also see our interviews on KTLA on the weekends and on YouTube. As always, thanks for sharing us on social media with your friends. Tag me when you do. I'm Frank Buckley TV on Twitter and on Instagram. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'll see you on TV.